You're listening to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Ayman Lau, and I'm the communications officer here at MLI. On today's episode, I'm joined by Davin Wong and Alex Lee from Alliance Canada Hong Kong. Davin Wong is a founding member and director of Youth Engagement and Policy Initiatives. Davin is a fourth year LLB student at the University of Hong Kong and was the president of the Hong Kong University Student Union from 2018 to 2019. He has a particular interest in human rights law and Canada-Hong Kong relations. Alex Lee is also a founding member and director of strategy and policy. Born in Canada, he has studied in Hong Kong. He has years of strategic experience for both nonprofit and not-for-profit firms as a management consultant and also has an interest in how nations should rethink their relations with China. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. Thank you so much for inviting us, Ayman. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. To start, let's talk about what has recently transpired in Hong Kong these past few weeks. As Hong Kong is grappling with the COVID-19 outbreak along with the rest of the world, it seems as though the CCP regime has used this as an opportunity to claw back the territory's already limited autonomy. It's pretty telling that a month ago, when Martin Lee was arrested, he stated that this was part of a broader scheme of of China's plan. And since then, there has been increasingly aggressive moves, such as ejecting elected pro-democracy lawmakers from LegCo, most notably in the controversial vote for Chairman Starry Lee, who was a pro-Beijing lawmaker. And now in the past week, China has drafted this national security law, which has been called the end of Hong Kong as we know it. So from your perspective, how do you think the national security uh, law will impact the situation in Hong Kong and what implications does this have for Canada? And we'll start with you, Davin. The national security law draft actually poses quite a number of problems within these seven articles. And in general, um, the draft proposed a boundless approach to restrict and control expressions and opinions in Hong Kong. And that does not only apply to Hong Kongers, but also any individuals that step foot in Hong Kong. So under the proposed national security law, any future protests against the Hong Kong SAR government and democratic movement will possibly fall into the scope of the crime of subversion against the state power. And it doesn't only cover Hong Kong residents, but also foreign individuals and groups, including any Canadian individual, business, and even our country. The term foreign forces plays a significant role in the draft of the national security law and the Chinese national security policies by and large. And the CCP has referred this to this boogeyman term as a lot of different things, like a foreign individual, foreign capital, business, and even the state herself. Um, for example, the United States was accused by the CCP mouthpieces as the foreign force behind the massive anti-extradition laws protests last year. The idea of foreign forces has become quite a universal excuse for the CCP to make accusation against our states. Kovrig and Spavel, they were falsely accused and detained for gathering state secrets and intelligence for foreign forces. It doesn't matter whether you have set foot in the political arena. The problem that the national security law draft poses is that once a Canadian or any foreign individual sets food in Hong Kong, they will be at risk of becoming a victim under the proposed law. And the CCP's emphasis on foreign forces 
in my opinion, shouldn't be surprising to Canada or us because it is very much coherent with their document nine position, where they see values such as democracy, human rights, freedom of the press as a threat to their party leadership, and they see countries that believe in these values as their enemies. So this approach is quite apparent, and I think is more apparent. I would say when they named one of their Key policies as consciously strengthen the management of the ideological battlefield. Chinese ideological aggression. I, I think they have a greater aggression with their ideological warfare when they choose to exert their document nine position in Hong Kong, a city where we always say where the East meets the West. And well, for Canada, whether we like it or not. Has very much become one of the CCP's enemy on the ideological ground and one of the hostile foreign forces that the CCP has always mentioned. And some further impacts on Hong Kong situation is that it also mandates the Hong Kong government to implement nationalistic pro-CCP education on national、uh, national security, and even allows the CCP to establish enforcement agencies in Hong Kong to police. And survey Hong Kongers, for example, possibly the Ministry of State Security, or MSS in short, which is responsible for、um, intelligence work in China, such as counterintelligence, foreign intelligence, as well as domestic surveillance and intelligence for national security. So these seven articles is. Very worrying for both Hong Kong and Canada, and also the international community by and large. And Alex, what are your thoughts as well on this? So、uh, I think Davin very eloquently posed why this law is so troublesome and how it affects Canadians as well. And this includes Canadians just there in transit, and of course the three hundred thousand Canadian citizens who live in Hong Kong. And just for context, that essentially makes. Makes、uh, Hong Kong our tenth biggest "quote unquote" province, with 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 more Canadians than、um, even the province of Prince Edward Island.、Uh, it's it's also particularly troubling seeing how this is in the, this is Beijing's effort to essentially completely erase all of the autonomy that Hong Kong has previously enjoyed. In Canadian terms, it's it's、uh, it's almost the equivalent of the federal government. Basically, invading the province of Quebec and removing any of the little aspects of autonomy that that、um, the province enjoys, as as Davin mentioned as well, the 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 verbiage of the law is also extremely problematic because they can be interpreted extremely loosely. As he mentioned, Coverage and Spaver were detained on trumped-up charges, including gathering state secrets and intelligence for foreign forces. And we know that、uh, that Richard Lee, an, an ex MLA from the province of British Columbia, was formerly detained in China, not Hong Kong, the airport, on similar、uh, spurious grounds. So I think that we, it would be quite naive to think that this only affects folks in Hong Kong, and that it doesn't ultimately tie back to Canada and our relations with China. And so it, it's quite interesting to see this law in which. It does actually blatantly violate、uh, one of Hong Kong's basic law, which upholds freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. And what are some implications for, let's say, education, which is also outlined in the article? Talking about freedom of thought, the the implication for the situation、uh, situation in Hong Kong 
um, or I would say um, the most worrying aspect is that through proposing such a draft on promulgating the national security law into Hong Kong, there are also uh, China and the CCP is also trying to divine or reinterpret these terms such as freedom of thoughts, freedom of expression in the CCP ways that doesn't threaten their party leadership, which actually completely goes against and defeats the nature and the purpose of these freedoms and rights. How would you rate Canada's response to the situation in Hong Kong since the 2019 protest? If I were to grade it, I'd probably give it around a C minus. And I just maybe maybe to start credit where credit is due, the four ministers of Canada, Australia, and the United Kingdom got together to issue a joint statement together. And as as small a step as this may be, I definitely hope that this does continue and that our peers, our allied nations can move forward on meaningful policies rather than just expressions of concerns. And that's sort of my biggest problem with this statement. Minister Champagne and other Canadian authorities have been expressing concern now for a very long time. We are well aware that everyone is concerned, but we need action. Some of these actions could be leveraging sanctions against human rights abusers in China and Hong Kong to stem the foreign interference of the Chinese Communist Party within Canada and to provide support for refugees and asylum seekers from Hong Kong. It was recently reported that there are, I believe, about 50 different asylum claimants that are currently being processed, and we, we need a way to expedite their process and to ensure that these asylum seekers are, are granted, uh, granted safety here in Canada. Ultimately, this needs to be a long-term strategy. We need to wean ourselves off from dependence on China in certain key areas if we want to be effective in standing up for ourselves and for marginalized communities around the world. Now, we can't do this alone, but we also can't do nothing. It's going to require taking some bold and concrete actions because these empty statements of expressing concerns, which are, they could be just copied and pasted from any number of events over the past little while, but they're getting increasingly meaningless. It's time to follow up those statements with some concrete actions. Well, um, I'd like to add on to what Alex just said. Um, I think it is important. Well, the joint statement um, issued by Canada, UK, and Australia, I think it's a good start. Oh, and of course, joint statement isn't enough. Like if these joint statements or mere concern by foreign countries would work, the, the anti-extradition law protests would have lasted so long last year. But what I think is important here um, with the joint statement is that I think Canada should, and also other countries which value democracy, freedom, and human rights as an important aspect of their country, should line up and think and battle the interference of China. Well, these countries didn't choose to get into any kind of trouble or battles with the CCP. But from what we have seen from the CCP's position, especially in their document nine, the CCP has already dragged them in their very own ideological drama. And in this situation, I think 
there is no escape from it, first of all, for Canada and any other Western countries. And second of all, these countries must make effort into protecting these values. When we see Chinese CCP's interference is getting greater and greater every day. It is a bit of a bitter irony that Canada is a supporter of the 1984 Sino-British Joint Declaration, which had committed China to upholding a policy of one country, two systems. And it, I, I've seen a number of articles during the 2019 protest in which Canadian Hong Kongers were expressing their disappointment in the lack of response and clear direction from the federal government on what was happening in Hong Kong. And even now, with while a joint statement, credit is where credit credit where credit is due, absolutely, but certainly doesn't send a signal, I think, to China that we're willing to stand up for Hong Kong. Yes, absolutely. If anything, it sends the message that Chinese authorities can act with abandon and that Canada, at least, doesn't seem to care. So what are your, I think this is, and obviously this is a very tough question, certainly something that uh, I've been mulling over myself, but why do you think the federal government is responding in the way it does? You know, you see a lot of theories that verge on almost conspiratorial in terms of why the federal government refuses to respond. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, so there, there have been a couple of theories out there, and um, you know, some are a little bit more based in rea- reality than others. One of the more commonly cited reasons is uh, the hostage diplomacy with the Canadian Michaels in custody. We don't want to jeopardize their safety. But I think that um, this, it sort of sets a truly depressing precedent in that if China is upset with anything Canada does, all they have to do is kidnap one of the hundreds of thousands of Canadians who lives in Hong Kong or China, and then we will completely bend over backwards to satisfy anything else that China wants from Canada. Another theory is that um, Canada is in a delicate geopolitical situation right now because the Trudeau government really wants a seat with the UN Security Council, and China's support will help to push along a lot of uh, African nations and other teetering nations, so it's a little bit of a contest like that in the UN right now. And there's additionally Canada's growing dependence on China, especially during the COVID pandemic, to get medical supplies. Now, a lot of this dependence is uh, it's, it's, it's more perceived than actual in a lot of sectors. And it's also true that like our farmers and resource sectors, uh, all, a lot of them, while vulnerable, they also support Canada taking a little bit of a stronger stance. And finally, there is some lack of political will. Rightly or not, the Liberal Party of Canada is increasingly being seen as the pro-China party, which is dangerous because, and I say this as a big L liberal myself, that protecting our national security and protecting public safety in Canada must never be a partisan issue. And it's dangerous how it's becoming partisan in Canada. Some of that, admittedly, is a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction to be against anything President Trump says or does. But fundamentally, we need all parties in Canada to be aligned that China poses an increasing threat to Canada and to nations around the world, of course, including Hong Kong. This deference to China has resulted in some astounding results. For example, Foreign Minister Champagne refused to thank Taiwan by name for a donation of desperately needed medical supplies. To his credit, Prime Minister Trudeau later reversed that and thanked them. 
and uh, Health Minister Haju essentially towed the Communist Party line by backing up uh, Chinese statistics on the COVID crisis, which are, of course, like nonsense at best. And fundamentally, even the joint statement that the UK, Australia, and Canada issued together saying that they were deeply concerned, there was no condemnation of Beijing's actions, even though there was a blatant breach of international law. Uh, And your thoughts as well, Davin? Canada must step up against authoritarian regime that undermine human dignity and human rights. And I think Canada at this point is obviously not doing enough. And that omits the fact that Canada actually has strength in standing up for human rights. Well, a lot of other countries have done more than us. For example, Australia has called for an independent investigation for the COVID-19 origins. And Sweden has closed its Confucius Institutes and ended twin city agreements while one of their citizens, Wei Minhai, was also kidnapped by the CCP. It is important that we ensure Kofor and Spafel are safe and they can come back to Canada safely. But Canada at the same time should understand that we still have the strength in standing up for human rights. They are not mutually exclusive. And yeah. Alliance Canada Hong Kong has drafted five demands for the federal government, which echoes the five demands of the Hong Kong protesters. What are these five demands and how did the Alliance come up with them? ACHK has come up with five demands and they are, the first of all, to invoke our existing um, Magnitsky Act and ask the Canadian government to sanction Chinese and Hong Kong officials that have been involved in the humanitarian crises. And second of all is to ask Ottawa to provide humanitarian support to Hong Kongers and victims under the CCP ruling. And the third one is to protect Canadians' fundamental freedom and combat Beijing's interference. Fourth one is to investigate um, foreign influence into Canada public and private institutions. And last but not least, to condemn CCP's human rights violations and end all exports of military and police goods and technology to China and Hong Kong. To come up with these five demands, we have launched a joint survey with a Hong Kong media organization called Citizen Press Conference and collected information and opinions about what type of concrete action and support that the Hong Kong-Canada community wants. One more core mission of Alliance Canada-Hong Kong is to essentially grow the political power of Hong Kong Canadians because the community has historically been ignored by Ottawa, partly because they're just sort of lumped into a larger Chinese-Canadian frame. And part of the goals of Alliance Canada-Hong Kong are to help empower the community such that they're able to better stand up for themselves within Canada as well. Now there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of hope here because it's a generally it's a very well educated and politically galvanized community in its own respect. For example, Hong Kong Canadians today sit on sit in Parliament under the Liberal, Conservative, and New Democratic parties. So ACHK has also put out a press release recently, as the national security law was announced, the proposal for the national security law was announced. 
And this press release stated that Canada should no longer grant Hong Kong special administrative status. What would this mean if Canada were to do this? So under the principle of one country, two systems, Hong Kong has often been treated as a separate entity from China, given her hitherto special administrative status and the promised high degree of autonomy. For example, Hong Kong and China are both treated differently according to tariff agreements and tax agreements with Canada. Canada's not unique here. The United States and loads of other countries have something quite similar. However, we have recently witnessed how this economy that Hong Kong has enjoyed has now unfortunately been almost completely stripped away in the past couple of years. So one country, two systems is very much a myth today. It was previously described that one country, two systems became one country, 1.5 systems, and now it's maybe 1.1, and even that's being slowly reduced. But still, because we have this legacy classification of Hong Kong's special status, it's created a backdoor when it comes to sanctions against China. So therefore, we have to ensure that the Chinese Communist Party cannot benefit from Hong Kong's special status while continuing to trample on that status, and at the same time, trampling on Hong Kongers' basic freedoms and human rights. It's about more than just sending a message to Beijing, but it's about recognizing the political realities on the ground. If Hong Kong is not separate from China, we shouldn't treat it as such. I think it is important to ensure that the CCP cannot benefit from Hong Kong's special status while trampling on Hong Kong's basic freedom and human rights and the high degree of autonomy that was supposed to be guaranteed by um, not only a Sino-British joint declaration, but also the basic law. I agree with Alex that it's more than sending a message to Beijing. But of course, basic um, first and foremost, while the CCP ignores um, international agreements and their constitutional duty, there should be consequences. I think another important aspect about revoking this special administrative status from Hong Kong is that Hong Kong right now needs the international community to recognize that its autonomy, freedom that has been guaranteed are being trampled and trampled and stripped away. All the benefits that Hong Kong can enjoy and the role that Hong Kong can be a backdoor to China when facing sanctions are given on the basis that Hong Kong enjoys a high degree of autonomy, as well as a very different governance and a very different kind of social system, etc. However, what we can see is that all these guarantees are turning into a myth or being revealed, or at the very least, CCP is going against her promise. And if Canada and the international community continues to attach false hope to this principle. It doesn't help Hong Kong, neither the international community. So then what advice would you give to the federal government in moving forward with Canada-China relations, including Hong Kong, in that, uh, in that realm? Ottawa has to understand that the CCP is not interested in building an equal relationship with Canada at the very least. <laughs> they want to assertively saying colonize through resource dependency 
through economic and trade. And Canada is enabling it if we continue with the current response and attitude. Examples about this kind of resources dependency and economic and trade, for example, One Belt, One Road, the Australian import ban, the Five Eyes report detailing resource dependence on China. These are all the strategies and the current situation where we see Canada and other countries are being dependent, starting to get more dependent on China and reducing our own bargaining power. So I think fundamentally, as Devin mentioned, the Canada-China relationship is not to be thought of as similar to the Canada-U.S. relationship, where there are mutual benefits and both parties are essentially responsible actors on the global stage. Instead, China exploits this dependence. So as a result, we need a national strategy to reduce our dependence on China. Even if you don't care about Hong Kong, even if you don't care that a million plus Uyghur Muslims are in internment camps in the largest mass detention since the Holocaust, even if you don't care about those, it's just good risk management. After all, during the COVID crisis, what did our dependence on China and our deference to their nonsense statistics get us? About a month ago, Prime Minister Trudeau brought home two planes empty from China. These planes were sent to pick up medical supplies, and unfortunately, the government failed at that. And those planes were were, um, sent home to Canada empty. And one day after that happened, the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Taiwan announced that they were donating half a million medical masks across Canada. That should tell us who our true friends are and the kind of relationships we should want to build with countries around the world. We need to take a strong stance and to back up our statements with action, whether it includes sanctions or changing policies. We also desperately need a registry of foreign agents because a lot of the acts of the Chinese embassies and consulates around Canada are completely unacceptable. This includes coordinating harassment of students on campus. This includes essentially encouraging violent acts by Chinese students against, for example, Hong Kong activists. And let me remind you, this happens in Canada. This happened at McMaster University, and Lord knows it's happening with the Tibetan heritage president of the University of Toronto Scarborough um, Student Union. Our China policy in Canada is just so backwards, and it's going to require a concerted effort to get back on the right foot. I'm a Canadian Hong Konger myself, and Truthfully, this has been an extremely difficult time. The question that I have is, how has this personally impacted you? And do you think we have lost Hong Kong? My life has been really hard since last year, since the anti-extradition laws amendment bill protests broke out. I was forced to flee back to Canada in fear of persecution last year, where I was tracked down and assaulted by a masked man which was likely a part of a larger campaign in hunting down activists, because not only me, but um, other activists were either arrested or attacked on the same day. Although I'm a Canadian citizen, I was raised very much all the time in Hong Kong. So I also share the pain and sentiment as a Hong Kong. I think at this time it's also noteworthy that in light of the historically close connection between Hong Kong and Canada, the Canada-Hong Kong community is also feeling the same pain and sentiment. During my time in Canada, I can feel that very closely. However, things haven't got 
gotten much easier in Canada, I would say. As an activist, I'm still living in the fear and risk of being surveyed. Well, for example, our executive director, Sherry Wong, was harassed and threatened during her stay in Vancouver, where she received threatening calls through the landline in her hotel room. But at the same time, I am, I would say, I'm actually optimistic about not the situation in Hong Kong, but the growth of the identity as a Hong Konger. A lot of my friends, um, both in Hong Kong and in Canada, they are building up such a strong sentiment for the identity as a Hong Konger and embrace our heritage in Hong Kong, which I believe is important and is a nice start for Hong Kong growing as a stronger, aggressively saying, a nation. And I really hope that we can continue to embrace our identity as a Hong Konger because this is the foundation where we can truly protect our dignity as a person and as a Hong Konger standing on stage of this international community. Unfortunately, I will probably never be able to go safely back to Hong Kong because even being on podcasts like this might put me at risk with this new national security law due to claims of, let's say, sedition or subversion or foreign interference and use whatever terms you like. It's heartbreaking because I have deeply fond memories of Hong Kong and it definitely feels like a part of me will always be there. But as someone who grew up under the influence of Harry Potter books, there's one quote that really stands out to me, and that's by Albus Dumbledore in the second book, The Chamber of Secrets, which is, you will find that I will only truly have left this school when none here are loyal to me. And similarly, that makes me think of Hong Kong, because as much as there are loads of media reports that justifiably have called this the death of Hong Kong, I truly believe that Hong Kong will only really die if nobody's willing to fight for it. Now, this this means, of course, folks in Hong Kong, like Jimmy Lai and Denise Ho and loads of my friends have said, no, we're not going to leave. This is our home. We're going to fight for it. But this also means that those of us who are overseas continue to have a responsibility for it. Hong Kong is not just a place, but it's also a people and it's a global community that transcends race and ethnicity and everything else. And that community and that that spirit thrives in Toronto and Vancouver and essentially any large city in Canada or large city around the world. These actions by Beijing will only galvanize us. I can actually, I was just looking yesterday and uh, the Alliance Canada Hong Kong website has gotten record traffic like over this past weekend that blew all of our expectations. And it just shows that we're all going to continue the fight, not just for Hong Kong, but for Canada to stop this foreign interference in Canada and to stop Hong Kong Canadians from being harassed in Canada and for the rest of the world. This is not simply a U.S. versus China dispute, as some in the media like to frame it as. It's essentially China trying to exert its claws on the world. And at some point, we all have to realize that Hong Kong is essentially the Berlin of our generation. It, it is the dividing ground of what, what is invariably going to be the next Cold War, and we need to start realizing that. The sooner that we can all 
all be honest about that fact and react appropriately, the better off we'll all be. I just got a message from my friends in Hong Kong at the time of recording that、um, a list、uh, with three hundred names on it leaked it from a pro CCP group, and it is really sad to see like not only my name on it but also a lot of names of a lot of my friends on it, and it, it is really hard, especially when you're name it and. You are being harassed, threatened, hunted down by pro CCP people, which you've done for protecting and standing up for human rights and human dignity. As I've always said,、um, fighting for human rights, after all, is a fight for your dignity, living as a human instead of a slave on Earth. I'm only one of them. There are a lot more people who are at risk because of their fight for. Our dignity to live as a Hong Konger instead of a slave of an authoritarian regime. Thank you so much for sharing and for your time today, and for coming onto Podless Canada. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you.